in the beginning. If you think about it, that's a bold thing to assert. It's a big statement. It's an audacious proposal to tell the story of the beginning of all things. And yet, it is something we all long to to locate, the beginning. The beginning, our beginning. How else can we explain phenomenon like the interest all around our country and indeed around the world in tracing our ancestries? Even in uh, sending in those packets of DNA so that we can find out all of the places from whence our ancestors came, traced in our own DNA. We're trying, are we not, to, to get to the beginning or at least closer to the beginning of who we are? I thought for a second about getting on Ancestry.com and digging into my own family tree a bit, but then I remembered stories that were told from both sides of my family relating to North Alabama duels, you know, like with pistols, and another relative, a relative purportedly getting run out of the state of Texas and decided that, you know, there are some things that are better not knowing about yourself. But the pull is rather strong to know, to trace our beginnings. I think it is in part at least a longing for home. We somehow believe that if we knew where our great, 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 great grandparents came from, we would perhaps be closer to home, to a homeland, to our people. I know people who, upon unexpectedly discovering their heritage in Scotland, their lineage running through Scotland, began making annual treks to Scotland. And when they first landed, they said there was this almost mystical connection they felt to the land and to the people. They'd never been to Scotland before, had never wanted to go to Scotland before, but around every corner, every experience felt like deja vu. Home. In times of great uncertainty, the longing for home becomes even more pronounced. In the days after September 11th, 2001, while most businesses in the economy were seeing declines, there was one area that was seeing an uptick, a significant one, home decor and furnishings. Many people, fearful and uncertain in those early days after that trauma to our nation, longed to create that pocket of comfort and security as much as possible and safety within the walls of their homes. Most scholars believe that this portion of the book of Genesis was written from within Babylon during exile 
after Israel had been sent into exile in 587 BCE. The Jewish people had been carried off from Jerusalem. The temple lay in waste. It was a time for the nation that we, frankly, can find hard to comprehend. A time of deep darkness, a time of chaos in every realm of their living. Politically, they had become powerless. They were at the mercy of their captors. Spiritually, they were homeless. The temple, which was the vital center of Jewish worship, the place where the Holy of Holies existed, where God, God's own self was thought to reside, where God was closest, gone. The voice that speaks to a people in exile is the voice that comes to us in Genesis chapter 1. That voice doesn't see God as creating from nothing, but instead from what the Hebrew word says is the tehom, the deep, from chaos, the dark waters surging, One translation says about that formless void. One translation says the earth was wild and waste. Wild and waste and dark. And for the ancient Hebrews, God did not do away with that chaos or darkness, but brought it into a larger order of things, creating space for life. For us. This act, according to the, this writer of Genesis, was good. And the creation was good. And it was an act of deep love and generosity. It is from this place of great chaos and uncertainty, then, that this voice emerges from Genesis, calling them to a deeper understanding of home. If God is the one who created from chaotic, unordered waters and darkness, if God's spirit or breath or wind, always that that Hebrew word ruah can be translated, if, if God's spirit or breath or wind brought a word and light pierced the darkness, if God brought order to night and day, then anywhere they are, God is. And anywhere God is, the chaotic waters and the darkness, even of exile, though they may seem all-consuming, can never overcome the love and light that is our origin and our true home. The writer Frederick Beekner has spent the bulk of his life writing precisely about this phenomenon, the longing for home. His search for home began for him at a young age when he was 10 years old and his father took his own life. After it happened, his mother, who embodied New England stoicism, 
dealt with the loss and demanded that everyone in the house deal with it in the same way. To never speak of it. And to never speak of his father again. With his father gone, his mother descending into silence, and with the expectation that it not be uttered, Beekner kept quiet. If people asked him how his father died, he said he had heart trouble, which Beekner reflected was a kind of truth. His heart was troubled, and he died. He was not able to break his silence until his mother died. And he was helped in breaking it by a dream he had repeatedly, both as a child and as an adult. He said he used to dream a lot about being in hotels. He had this room that was wonderful for him, and he remembered less of it visually than about how good he felt when he was in it. He writes, it was just the right place for me. I felt at peace and happy. And then the dream went on and I had other adventures which I've forgotten, but I found myself back in the hotel, again trying to find the room where I felt so good, so at peace. But unfortunately, I didn't remember what the room number was. It was a big hotel. So I went down to the desk, and somebody at the desk was there, and I said I was trying to find this room, but I can't remember the number. He said, oh, it's very easy to get to that room anytime you want. It doesn't have a number. It has a name. I said, what is the name of that room? He said, the name of that room is Remember. Remember. Beekner says, it woke me up in more ways than one. I don't understand entirely what it meant, but it somehow gave me a clue. It gives us all a clue that to remember far enough, to remember deeply enough, is to remember God. It's to remember the Garden of Eden to remember where you came from and that through remembering you work your way back to some truth that is liberating and healing. The Genesis voice calls Israel to remember. And in that holy memory, they remember a God who cannot be contained in temple walls whose creative love does not stop at the boundary of the city of Jerusalem, but whose spirit creates and continues to create right at that moment of deepest chaos and darkness. Right at that moment, the voice calls out, look around in the tumult of it all. Look around in wonder at what God is creating in the midst. Martin Luther, that great reformer of the church, paid a heavy price for his ideas of reformation. Due to the new ability to copy written texts and spread them 
far beyond a single town or province. Luther went from being a relatively obscure monk to a widely known and widely vilified figure in the church of his day. There were times when his life was threatened, his livelihood was put into question, and all the comfort and peace he had known was thrust into chaos. He wrote in several places rather autobiographically, and he said it was his practice, whenever he felt the weight of the events bearing down on him, he would place his fingers on his forehead and say, I am baptized. I am baptized. Today, the Christian church all over the world is remembering the baptism of Jesus. And this memory is not so much for the sake of historical recollection. It's more of a liturgical remembering. It's for the sake of knowing that God, as God created from the waters of chaos through the Spirit, so God creates in baptism newness of life. The first day is recreated for us in baptism. In baptism, we are joined with Christ to God's creative work in the world. This truth is both healing and liberating. It heals, as Luther saw, by constantly calling us back to our true identity. No matter what other labels may be applied to us throughout our living, the rock-bottom reality of our lives is that we belong to God. When my children were younger, I got into the practice of tracing the sign of the cross on their foreheads as they were lying down for sleep. Sometimes I would say, the peace of Christ be with you. Sometimes I would say, you are baptized. Sometimes I would say, you belong to God. They're really interchangeable, those words. And especially on those evenings, you know those evenings, right? When the day had been long and hard for them. Or on those evenings that followed some conflict we may have had. You know those evenings, right? The words and the sign were even more important on those evenings. They had a way of calling us back to the truth beyond whatever chaos and darkness may be present in the moment. They were healing words. And this is a liberating memory also. It is liberating because in baptism we are joined to God's creating, creating and reconciling and healing and liberating work in the world. When we see chaos raging, when we see deep waters overcoming, when we see darkness drowning out the light, we do not move away from it. We do not cower in fear before it. We do not leave those who are suffering it alone in their suffering. By the power of the Spirit, we move toward it. 
joining in God's ongoing work of creation. The mission of the church is clear inside these walls and outside in the world. The mission is the one the new elders we ordain and install today are called to lead us into. To remember, and in remembering, to be healed and become a healer. To be liberated and become a liberator. To be forgiven and become forgiving. To be loved and become loving. In that deep memory, may we find ourselves at home and light the way for the world to come home as well. Amen. Let us.